Well, good morning, everybody. Please take hold of your Bibles or switch them on. And we're turning to 2 Timothy chapter 3, which will not be a surprise to many of you when we think about the foundation of God's Word. 2 Timothy chapter 3. As you've already heard, we're thinking about building on a solid foundation. <clears throat> the Church Bibles, it's page 1196. I forgot to say that. 1196, if you're using a Church Bible. And wave your hand if you like, but it'll be on the screen. So it's uh, building on a solid foundation in this series on kingdom values, the values on which we need to build as a church as well. These are to do with foundational issues. And as you've already heard, Jesus said... <clears throat> In that story of the two men who built their houses, one on sand and the other on rock, he said, <coughs> excuse me, he said, he who hears my word and obeys me is like the man who built his house on a rock. So hearing God's word and building on it, being obedient to it, is like building on a solid foundation. Um, I had to do some work, some work with the Russian Orthodox Church at one time and talking with them and with some of their leaders and so on, I, I asked them why it is in their liturgy, and they have a four-hour liturgy every Sunday morning and you stand for the whole time, based on John's Gospel mostly, I asked them why they don't have any preaching in their services and the person I spoke to said, well, pre preaching, how can you possibly have teaching about God? I mean, we're finite. God is infinite. It's an insult to think that we finite people can speak about what God is like. And I said, well, why do people come? And he said, we come not to learn about God. We come to experience God. There's some truth in that. Except that it's true that we cannot know about God and what his purposes and plans are for us, unless he chooses to reveal himself to us. If it's a case of me trying to discover him, then I'm wasting my time. My finite mind cannot possibly take in the infinite. But if he chooses as the infinite one to reveal himself to me, then what he reveals must be the most important thing, the greatest foundation on which we can build, as he reveals something of himself and as he reveals something of his plans and purposes. Therefore, I have no hesitation in saying <coughs> that the great need, perhaps one of the greatest needs of the Church of Jesus Christ today is a knowledge of God's Word. <clears throat> it's the most lacking element in church life today, I feel. Lack of knowledge of God's Word and what it has to say. That's why so many of us are vulnerable to every wind of doctrine that blows its way through our experience in church. We're off on another trip, another experience, another course that's going to revolutionize everything all the time. Now, these are not all bad but they tend to be fads that we, we take up for a little while and then drop it and go for something else. And it's like winds of doctrine that blow through the church. Some, of course, of the winds of doctrine blowing through the church uh, are, are bad. 
and not contained within Scripture at all. And that's why also many of us who ought to be strong, spiritually speaking, in our life of service, those who ought to be strong are in fact weak. That's what the writer to the Hebrews writes about in in the end of uh, chapter 5 and on into chapter 6 of Hebrews where he argues the case, he said, you ought to be strong, but you have abandoned the truth of God's word. You haven't taken in the truth of God's word. It's already been mentioned to us together this morning. And consequently, they were weak spiritually because they hadn't taken in God's word. That's why many are weak in their Christian faith. Now remember, Jesus said, uh, rather, the, the, um, Paul says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Or to use the NIV, which is perhaps slightly fuller representation of it, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. If you want your faith to grow, it will grow through the application, reading and application of this book. That's what's being said. That's why it's that's so foundational for us. And by the way, both the Old and New Testaments tell us, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. It's not enough to have just a general view of the Bible and the general view of the stories. It is every word, the scripture says that we should be building upon. It's not enough to feed on other things. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. And it means every individual word that God reveals himself from the mouth of the Lord. So this general view, whilst it's good and proper and so on, we need to be able to say we are examining everything that God is saying to us, every word that God is saying to us. So what I feel is secondary. What I desire is secondary. What I experience is secondary. What I plan is secondary. What I think, what, is rational, what I rationalize about, they are secondary things. What I think my needs are, they are secondary things. None of those things are unimportant. They all need to fall into place and have their right application in our lives but they're all secondary to an understanding of God's word. That is the foundation on which everything is is built. Because here, in this book, God has revealed himself, and he's revealed his plan for us. And it's important, therefore, this must be the most important thing to get to know what God's word has to say. If God has revealed himself, and if God has revealed his plan, then we need to know it. And of course all those other things fall into place as we take those things in. Now we read from Psalm 119. Glynis and David read it for us. Psalm 119 is pretty well the central chapter in the Bible. I think it's actually Psalm 118 verse 8 or something is the central verse. Depends how you divide it up because not all versions divide it up quite, quite the same. But it'll pretty much the center. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. 176 verses in Psalm 119, and it's an acrostic psalm, as you will know as you turn to it. 
There are eight verses beginning with each successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet and 22 times 8 is 176 verses. And every single verse is to do with God's word in one form or another. And it starts like this. Why don't we read it out loud together? Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of God. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their hearts. We had a minor discussion at the beginning about what blessed means. But I tell you, it means, of course, amongst other things, they are the most honored, most blessed. They're the most joyful. They're the most fulfilled. They're the ones whose lives are overflowing with the bounty of God. Those who apply God's word like this. Joyfully happy, joyfully satisfied and fulfilled. And then every, every word in verse in Psalm 119 speaks in one form or another of the word of God. It's called, called different things in different places. It's called the law of God, which of course refers to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. It refers to the statutes or testimonies, according to your translation. That's the Ten Commandments itself. You remember the Ark of the Covenant was called the Ark of the Testimony. Then it speaks about precepts of the Lord. The precepts are the prerequisites that God has for blessing us. Do this and you will be blessed. It speaks about the decrees of God. That's the civil injunctions, how we live in society. It speaks about the judgments of God. That's building on judicial systems. In other words, God wants his children to be happy in every area of life, blessed, fulfilled in every area of God's life. And to do that, it's the application, says the psalmist again and again, 176 times, it's the application in one form or another of this book, of God's word. That's why down the years, pretty well all great leaders in the Christian church have emphasized the importance of meditating and studying and learning and applying and thinking about and reading God's word, even as we've talked about it this morning. Here's Wesley, for example, John Wesley. To candid, reasonable men, I'm not afraid to lay open what has been the inmost thoughts of my heart. I'm a creature of a day, passing through life as an arrow through the air. I'm a spirit come from God and returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf, till, a few moments hence, I am no more seen. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know the way to heaven. How to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach us the way and for this very end he came from heaven and he's written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book. John Wesley. Or what about Charles Spurgeon? It is blessed to eat the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord so that your blood is bibline and the very essence of the Bible flows from you. Spurgeon. Or oh, here's George Muller from just down the road in Bristol. To the scriptures, he's speaking about the scriptures, he says, we become in them we become acquainted with the character of God. 
Our eyes are divinely open to see what the lovely being of God is. I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the word of God and meditating on it. The most important thing. Remember he had an orphanage of 10,000 children. Started the great orphanage movement from whom others like... Well, I mustn't go into all that now. But... uh, Uh, went forward from there. He saw that the most important thing was to read and study and meditate on God's word. What food it is to the inner man. Not prayer, but the word of God. And not the simple reading of the word of God so that it only passes through our minds just as water runs through a pipe. But considering what we read, pondering it and applying it to our hearts. George Muller. We had three or four people telling us how they read the Bible. Miles Coverdale, who was one of the great translators of the Bible in the very early days into English, in the introduction to his Bible translation, he said this, it will greatly help you to understand Scripture if you know not only what is spoken and written, but of whom and to whom and with what words, at what time, where and to what intent, with what circumstances, considering what goes before and what follows. These are all great men that spoke of the importance of the word of God. When I was a child, the church I was brought in one day had a, uh, brought up in had a, a speaker come and speak about the Bible to the children on a Sunday school anniversary service. And this was the message. He took his Bible and just did this. You might have done similar things. Honor, obey, love your Bible. It brings life everlasting, holy Bible. Stuck with me ever since, but it's true. That's why we should honor, obey, love your Bible. Now this morning I want to focus uh, particularly on this passage here, 2 Timothy chapter 3. So if you've got it in front of you, you, that's a good thing. You can either read it from the screen there or read it um, from your Bible, but let's see what he says. These verses 10 to 17. You, however, know all about my teaching, says Paul, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We need to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who rightly divides or rightly handles the word of God. Now, as Paul says these things to Timothy, he, the beginning of this chapter and elsewhere in this letter, by the way, the letters of Timothy are probably the last letters that Paul wrote particularly the second letter, is the last, 
probably the last thing he wrote. But uh, as he writes this, he talks about where he sees himself. And he warns Timothy. He warns Timothy that he, that they, that we, that us, what the things we will face. He talks about persecutions in verse 12. About pressures in verse 10. He talks about being abandoned. He talks about cultural breakdown in the first nine verses of this chapter. Now, when he warns Timothy about this, he's only doing what Jesus did shortly before he left too. You remember, Jesus, shortly before he left, said to the disciples in John 16, he says, the time will come when men will kill you and think they're doing God's will. By the way, whenever I read that, I think of ISIS. You know, they talk about doing God's will. and They're killing people. Even killing other believers, as you know. Other Christians as well. Think they're doing God's will. And Jesus said the time will come when those who kill you will think they're doing God's will. Now, Timothy, in those circumstances, what do you need to do? And the answer is, verse 14, is to continue in what you have learned. Continue in what you've learned. Now, what does that mean? It means to stick with the basics, to make the main things the main things. Don't get involved in alternative spiritualities. He talks early on in the chapter about Janis and Jambres. It's the only place it's mentioned in the Bible because they're not mentioned in the Old Testament, but they're, the Jews always thought that they referred to, and they probably do, the, the magicians who Moses, when Moses went to Pharaoh and asked the, the children of Israel to be released from captivity, and he threw his, his staff on the ground and it became a serpent, he picked it up, it became a stick again. The magicians came along with all sorts of tricks like that, and it was those magicians who were referred to in Jewish traditions as Janus and Jambres. And, uh, you know, alternative spirituality, sometimes producing miracles, sometimes talking about the experiences they'd had, and so on. Don't get involved in all those things, says, says Paul to Timothy. Stay basic, stay focused. Now, what he's referring to is all Scripture. All Scripture. So here's the verse. All Scripture, verse uh, 16, is God-breathed and is useful to teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, what is all Scripture? Well, clearly it's the Old Testament because the New Testament had not yet been written. At least good part... Good, a considerable amount of it, had not yet been written when Paul said this. So it refers to the Old Testament. Peter, in his letters, speaks about it, as do others as well. But in chapter 1 of 1 Peter and chapter 1 of 2 Peter, Paul, uh, Peter says this, Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And he go, enlarges a bit on that. So it's, the Old Testament, the Old Prophecies, and the Old Testament. But then there's also more than that. It refers to the New Testament as well. In fact, Peter goes on to speak about uh, Paul's own writings, which he says are scripture. He says the writings of Paul are difficult to understand, and people twist them as they do other scriptures, which means that he considered P uh, Paul's writings as scripture themselves. 
And they come together and they're referred to as all Scripture. The Old and the New Testament are all Scripture. So here we have all Scripture includes the Old Testament and the New Testament, which you can look up largely later on. Some critics have suggested that what Paul is saying, that all Scripture that is inspired by the Holy Spirit is profitable. But no, it's all Scripture. And as we've seen, Matthew 4, 4, and Deuteronomy chapter 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So that as I take it in, I allow the Scripture to judge me and evaluate me and teach me It's not me judging Scripture. I don't weigh up whether I think this is God's Word or not, or whether I think this applies to me or not. I allow the Scripture to speak to me. It's the other way round. Paul goes on in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy to say that he should preach the Word because the day is coming when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, they will just turn to people who tell them what their itching ears want to hear. It's a lovely expression, isn't it? What their itching ears want to hear. A few years back, a survey was done amongst evangelical churches. And they found that only 3% of evangelical churches consistently have any form of Bible teaching. Terrible, isn't it? 3%. Peter Briley, who did the re- around Christian research, Started that when he was working for in the number 10 Downing Street when he did research for them and uh, the, the work that the organization has done ever since is the one that the government refers to even today when it talks about church life. He says that the demise of the church in this country is the demise of Bible teaching. So only 3% had any form of real Bible teaching in their churches. Terrible indictment of the church. Far more have midweek meetings of some sort, but they deal with topical issues and recovery programs and marriage issues and relational um, programs and so on, all of which are important and good. But it's the teaching of God's word that matters. And Paul says in the last days people will turn away from this straightforward Bible teaching. Simple doctrinal teaching will turn away to myths. So as we focus on all scripture, it covers, says Paul, Four things. And here are the four things it covers. Teaching. Rebuking. Correcting. Training in righteousness. The scripture, all scripture therefore teaches us what is right, what is not right. It teaches us how to get right. And it teaches us how to stay right. What those four aspects refer to, of course, in simple form. So this book, written over 1,600 years, over uh, 60 generations by 40 or more different authors on three continents, with three languages, in culturally different situations, in different moods and circumstances, concerning different situations, yet this book speaks to us with one single voice. Now, if that's the case, what does the scripture actually do do for us? Why do we say this morning that this is foundational? Why did we put it 
as was the foundation of everything. Let me mention five things as far as the scriptures are concerned. First of all, it is God-breathed. There it is. It is God-breathed. That means not breathed into by God, but breathed out by God. God breathed it out. Its origin, its source is important. As we read it, we hear God speaking to us in a way that nothing else speaks to us. It's called in verse 15, the Holy Scriptures. Paul says you've known the Holy Scriptures. That simply means that it shares, they share the character of God himself. God's qualities, his personal qualities, are self-authenticating. When you meet God, you don't have to be told that God's holy. You don't have to examine all sorts of things to decide whether he's holy. He is self-authenticating. His character is. It's obvious, and it's similarly with Scripture. The reason people want proof about the Scripture is simply because they don't read it, because when you read the Scripture consistently, then it becomes self-authenticating to you. And uh, imagine God speaking to you. God came down one day and appeared in your room, and he spoke to you in the way that you hear each as other people's voices. Well, he does, as we read the Scripture. And as a result, not only is it's God-breathed, the second thing that Paul says is also true. It is useful, he says to Timothy. That simply means when you read it, you're not wasting your time. You may feel sometimes that you're wasting your time because your mind is struggling to focus. You're thinking about the dinner. You're thinking about the children. You're thinking about getting off to work and the failures of the day before, all sorts of things. But as you take the time to read God's Word, it does things. It's useful. It's producing something. You're not wasting your time reading and studying and meditating and understanding and obeying and learning the Bible. It doesn't waste time at all. Not one minute wasted as you read it. They do something. They change you. This is an investment with a huge return. Even if you can't see it, the huge return the next day. It's an investment in your personal life and we as a church as we focus on it. It's an investment in the church too. So let me ask you a political question now. Are you a conservative or a liberal? Don't answer. You don't do that here. Politics anyway. <coughs> I'm not really talking about politics. We sometimes think that conservative and liberal are sort of almost opposites. But in the Christian life, they're not opposites. We are conservative. Paul says in verse 14, continue in what you have heard. And what you have. Continue, conserve it, keep it. Don't let it slip, says the writer to the Hebrews. Keep it. That's being conservative with God's word. But we're liberal too. Chapter 4, verse 2 in this book he talks about wanting to share it with others. Preach the word, he says, in season and out of season, whether you think it's the right time or whether you don't think it's the right time. So the scriptures have an impact upon us. They are useful to us simply because they are God-breathed. They are from God. And we as one conservative liberal as far as our Christian life is going to want to keep God's word at the center of everything and we want to share it with everybody, both conserving and liberally sharing it with others. Then there's the third thing. It is convincing. That's what he says in verse 14. 
Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. So as we read it, the holy character of Scripture that comes from the holy character of God is self-authenticating, as I said, and it's self-authenticating and we find that the Scriptures are trustworthy and they are authoritative and reliable. But for that reason, we have to read, we have to obey it. It doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't come as a result of meeting here. It doesn't come as a result of doing good works. Again, both very important things. But it it comes from the uh, taking in what God has to say and applying it to our lives in obedience to him. So often for us, we think we need to be convinced so that we read it and obey it. If only I was convinced it was the word of God, then I'd read it and then I'd obey it. We put it like that. But the scripture actually says it the other way around. As we read it and obey it, then we become convinced. It becomes self-authenticating, as I keep saying. And what self-authenticated it with Timothy? Well, he says, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you remember You learned all this from your grandmother and your mother, your mother Eunice and your grandmother Lois. You took it in with your mother's milk. You were brought up in it. Allow this to be, you become convinced of it. Allow it to be worked out in your experience. You know, one of the problems of third, second, third, fourth, whatever it may be, generation Christians, perhaps many of us here, is that uh, we learn the scriptures and the importance of the scriptures from our parents. But we never therefore got round to reading it for ourselves. We've just accepted it. We've known the Bible stories all our lives. But we need to read it for ourselves and apply it to ourselves and our lives. So at a deep spiritual level, if we don't take this in for ourselves, we never really become convinced. Oh yes, we say we're convinced, but not convinced enough to burn our bridges behind us and go ahead on what it says. But Paul says, just as these scriptures are God-breathed and useful, so they are convincing. Then the next one, number four. Verse 15, they make us wise. They make us wise, he says. Able to make you wise for salvation. Now, Paul uses it, he says, they are able to make you wise. That word able is an interesting word. It's the word dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite, from which we get the word dynamic. These scriptures are dynamic. These are powerful things that we read. They are powerful words to us. They make us wise on several levels. Psalm 119, from which we read earlier, in verse 98, it says this, Your commands make me wiser than my enemies. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Psalm 119, verse 130, They give understanding to the simple. Deuteronomy 4 verse 6 says, Observe my laws and decrees carefully, for this will show, your, show you your wisdom and understanding to the nations. 
think it was Miles Kington who said, the difference between knowledge and wisdom can be illustrated in that knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. You know, one is the application of the other. And as we read the scriptures, they give us understanding, they make us wise. I once took an assembly in a school in Cheltenham for the six forms of Cheltenham. Um, it wasn't an assembly, it was a seminar in class there. And, and I spoke on the subject, how to have more understanding than your teachers. I don't know how it went down with the teachers, but the, I based it on Psalm 119, verse 99. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. Produced quite a reaction, but we won't go into that now. So the scriptures are here to subdue human folly, which is the opposite of wisdom. But not only do they make us wise in that general sense, they have the ability to make us wise in a particular sense. They make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. How did Timothy, who was brought up as a Jewish, uh, in a, a Jewish traditions, his father was a Greek, but his mother and grandmother were Jews, how did Timothy, brought up in those Jewish traditions and teachings, become wise? Well, as he read the scriptures, the pathway to faith in Messiah Jesus, became clear to him. Jesus is what the scriptures are all about. They make Jesus real to us. They make Jesus' work on the cross a reality in our experience. So as I soak myself in this book, wisdom happens. I become wise. Not only wise for salvation, but wise in er other areas of life too. Then the last thing. They are life-changing. Verse 17 so that we may become thoroughly equipped for every good work. This one book, read and applied, is enough to transform us, our community, our society, the whole of humanity. You know, um, if you're looking for a New Year's resolution for 2016, make it this, read the Bible. Read the Bible and pray every single day. There's a couplet for you. Read the Bible and pray every single day. And you can apply all sorts of stories to this. You remember the story of the, good, the, uh, of the mutiny on the bounty. How when Captain Bly put those sailors that had a mutiny on the bounty and they, 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 they took over the ship and put Captain Bly and a couple of others in a, in a, sh in a long boat and set them adrift. They couldn't come back to this country therefore and landed on an island, Pitcairn Island and uh, before very long they were at each, at each other's throats and there was murders and uh, violence and all that sort of thing, all, everything that could be vile was there and midst of it all, with people being killed, eventually the few that were left decided, look we cannot carry on like this, we will uh, having married some of the native people and so on and destroying society. And so we cannot carry on like this. What should we do? And then somebody said, well, is there anything left of the old ship? And they went down and they found the place, the cave, where they had taken off stuff from the, from the, the ship before it broke up in the surf over the years. And amongst the things was the chest of stuff that they took out of the captain's cabin. And in it was the ship's Bible. And that night... Fletcher Christian sat down with the few sailors the less. He was the only one that could read and he read a few pages from the Bible. 
Next night they did the same, the next night the same. Almost by a miracle, Captain Bly and his men set sail in a longboat, hadn't drowned, but eventually found their way back to England and they'd set sail several trips to several boats to try and find the good ship Bounty. And one day a ship landed on Pitcairn Island. When they landed, they didn't find a community at each other's throats killing each other. They found what they described as an almost perfect society where there was order and love and where people learned to care for each other and look after each other. That's the impact of the Bible. It changes things just by simple reading and applying it. It has a life-changing character. And that's not activated by simply determination or church attendance or all those other things and so on. Not by following a particular plan of a preacher and so on. It's as we learn to obey the Bible, it trains us in righteousness. Verse 16 says. Finally, as we talk about reading, meditating, thinking upon, learning, studying, this word of God, the Bible. I wonder if you're thinking, well, that's not another thing you're going to put on my shoulders. Another burden for me to carry into 2016, is it? Well, John puts it like this in 1 John chapter 5. He says this. This is love for God, to obey his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Let's pray together as we come to a close of our time. Let's pray. Blessed are those who walk not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful, but their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They're like trees planted by streams of water that yield their fruit in its season, whose leaves do not wither. All they do, all that they do, they will prosper. Lord, we pray that you will teach us the value of this tremendous thing you've done in giving us your word. We pray for those whose task it is to read, translate, print, publish the word of God. We thank you for the privilege we have of having it in our own language in so many different versions. We pray that through 2016 you will teach us to value it more and more, to lay it in our hearts as a foundation on which everything else is built, that we might grow strong and for the praise of your glory. Help there to be much building at Abbey through this year, we pray, built on this solid foundation. And may the glory of God be seen amongst us in these days. Now bless us as we go our different ways. May your love, your grace, the abiding presence of your Holy Spirit be with each one of us as we seek to read, study and obey your word for Jesus' sake. Amen.